0: Let's take our Bibles together, shall we? Let's turn in them to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Coming to the close of this chapter, the final two verses of this chapter before us this morning. Give us the context. I'm going to read from verses 9 through verse 20. If you would follow along in your Bibles as I read in mine. Verse 9, Hebrews chapter 6. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord God, oversee our study this morning, the preaching of your word. We beg you, Lord, to give us indeed the security that we need as we hope and as we place our faith in hope upon your promises and, Lord, upon the person of your Son, Jesus Christ, our great High Priest. May we know him and trust him and let him walk before us and follow him until we see you face to face. We ask your help in this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. the writer of hebrews is moving them on to maturity a mature understanding of those who are of the faith and those who are not those who are the those who fall away and those who have the accompanying elements of salvation not the things that earn them salvation by their works but rather the things that A true new birth, evidence in the life, the production that comes from being saved. And this morning we are going to ask the question, is your soul anchored properly? Some of you might be saying, well, I'm not quite sure what a soul is anyway and how it would be anchored. I'm not quite sure how that would work either. But this is a passage about the anchoring of the soul via hope. Hope that is connected to the promises of God and his great high priest who ministers before God on our behalf. So as we look at our life and we take an account, as we have been doing, and we've been marking our historical chronicle of what exists in our Christian walk. Those things can be traced and they will give us confidence as we find them existent in our lives as evidence of the new birth. And the writer of Hebrews has given us three specific lists of things that accompany salvation there in verse 9. We've studied the first two with the headings of unflagging diligence in the areas of work and love and ministry and diligence, etc. We looked at the second list of unchangeable confidence and an unchangeable confidence in the promise of God that's based on God who never changes. His immutability governs his promises. When God promises, since he does not change, his promises never fail. So we trust God's unfailing character and nature, not our own fallible nature and inconsequential efforts. We now move to our third, an immovable reliance, an unmovable reliance. And all of these are evidence of salvation presented in these verses, and particularly now, verses 19 and 20. So we may take an account as to how our soul is anchored, how our soul is anchored, so that we might answer the question, are you saved? Without just saying, I hope I'm saved, we may tell, we may show, we may live a hope that has been given us here as an anchor for the soul. So we'll look this morning at our new study, the unmovable reliance in the great high priest Jesus. We'll look at three unmovable points of reliance. The saved rely on these points to steady their ship upon the sea of life. We indeed are afloat, and the sea of life is moving, but the anchor must be solidly attached at the points where God would have it be. This hope, the scripture says, we have as an anchor for the soul. So God is using a a metaphorical picture. He's giving us a design of an anchor. Greek word means in English, anchor. And it is much like our anchors, even in modern day. It is a weight attached to a rope or a chain that is thrown over the side of a boat or a ship, oftentimes with a couple of hooks, up to two or three, and in some cases having on those points what they call flukes, the little flares that you'll see on the front of your bulletins, to aid the anchor in gaining purchase upon the ground so you may be floating upon the sea you may be floating down a river but underneath all of that there is indeed terra firma there is earth there is a solid foundation even under the sea that can be attached to your ship and what we're looking at here is a culture that understands sea life any of us who were born in Montana, we are indeed the true form of a land lubber. We are so far from any kind of sea as to be, in most cases, almost entirely ignorant of seafaring and ocean life. The closest we might get are those who go on the rivers or on some of our lakes, and indeed there is a, a part of that that's applicable, but not really. The sea is a different animal. The ocean is even greater. And for the Hebrews, they live, the promised land is on the Mediterranean Sea. That is where they lived. The sea is part of their life. It is part of their life blood. The sea gives them life. The sea is part of how they move about. Before there were great highways and before there were airplanes, waterways were the ways of travel even in the early stage of the United States of America if you wanted to see this great land in which we had like lewis and clark you needed to take a boat and you were going to need to be on the rivers and across the lakes but in this land the mediterranean sea is all around the culture of israel is tied to the culture of the mediterranean sea israel were had seafaring parts of their peoples. They were bordered by the Phoenicians, the great Tyre and Sidon, that plied their trades and became so rich upon the Mediterranean Sea. Later, the Greeks rose to a mighty empire and ruled, kind of like the British Empire once was, by their great sea power and the triremes and the great sea barges that floated upon the seas. It was they that took on the great Persian fleet, also in the Mediterranean Sea, and defeated them at Salamis. The Egyptians are known as a river people but also a seafaring people, and they exported their grain across the Mediterranean Sea to those countries that were in need of their grain. The great city of Carthage on Africa was part of the Mediterranean Sea culture and they ruled and raided on their end of the sea all the way to the pillars of Hercules. This was their culture. So when God uses this to talk to the Hebrews, there is an understanding of an anchor and its usefulness in steadying a ship or even a boat. Anchors were what you relied on when you wanted to stay put when you wanted to rest from the sea. And we are being called on to look at these three immovable points of reliance. And a reliance in the first place on the high priestly order of Jesus. We need to learn to rely on the high priestly order of Jesus. And this becomes an evidence of salvation. This is something that accompanies Those who are saved, it's in this context. And we begin our reliance on the order of the high priest of Jesus Christ with small letter A, lowercase letter A in your notes, a reliance on the secure hope in our high priest, a reliance on the secure hope that is in our high priest. As our text reads, verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. So in this case, we're going to look at our anchor as having two great hooks with two flukes upon it that we want to catch hold of the bottom of the sea or the bottom of the bay or the riverbed to keep our ship stable. And the first of these two flukes is a sure anchor worthy of hope. Our fluke must be sure in the sense that it steadies. It needs to be sure, particularly true, or to be certain of. When you throw it over, you're sure that this anchor is going to catch, and it will confirm that it is holding securely by the tightening of the rope or the chain to which it is attached on your ship. Sure. Does your anchor hold? Are you sure about that? Where is your anchor set? I bring you to the Apostle Paul to help us answer this question in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 quite obviously follows Philippians chapter 2. I don't say that as an insult. I say it to remind us of the context of humility and humiliation. Chapter 2 begins with the great kenosis passage of Jesus humbling himself and coming like as a man and ministering and serving as a man in humility. Then the example of that is given to us to follow after in the remainder of chapter 2 of Philippians. So after the chapter on humility, Paul starts Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, thus. Finally, brethren. So after saying all of that, he says, Now finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious. So I'm not overworked here. I am enjoying my work, but for you... It is, listen, safe. It is safe. It is sure. It is confidence building that Paul would write to them these words from the book of Philippians that they can trust in. Even trusting in this person of Jesus who lowered himself from his high estate as God, very God, to become human and to walk as a man. And it is interesting, even if we look at Philippians just a little bit farther, we would see in verse 4, Paul saying, Though I might also have, listen, confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I more so. He in verse 3 says, We should have no confidence in the flesh. We have confidence not in us and what we may do in the fleshly realm, but confidence in Christ and what he did. There's a big difference there. In verse 8 of Philippians 3, notice, But indeed, Paul says, even after recounting all the things he could have confidence in in the flesh, I also count all things loss. listen, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. The excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, dovetailing with what we've heard in Hebrews, by now you should be teachers. By now you should know the deep things of Jesus Christ, even of his high priestly ministry. And now I'm going to not redo the elementary things. I'm going to teach you about this great high priest. So if right now you're having trouble anchoring your ship, To your knowledge of the great high priest Jesus, over the next weeks and months, I am going to give you some solid rocks at the base of the bay, at the bottom of the river, for you to securely attach your anchor to, so that your anchor will steady you. Paul wanted to know more, to be a student of Jesus Christ. And not only just who he was, but what he did. Notice, just just quickly, verse 10 of chapter 3 of Philippians. Paul declares a heart's desire, a way of life. He declares that I may know him, may know Christ, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, most of us would go, through the first third of that verse and say me too that i may know him and the power of his resurrection yes i want to know jesus risen again from the dead that's power i want to know that power and we be there and boy doesn't that preach on a sunday and it should but so does the rest of the verse and The fellowship of his sufferings. Wait a minute. I like the Jesus stuff. I like the resurrection stuff. What's this fellowship of sufferings? I've read the fellowship of the rings. And it looks like that fellowship caused a lot of suffering. Well, the fellowship of the church with Jesus Christ is indeed a journey. It is a quest. It is a commitment to stand on the reality of the power of the resurrection through the sufferings and joining with Christ in the sufferings that have been prescribed for us. Everybody say it. Amen. Oh, that was weak, weak, weak and I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, amen. That's a little bit better. He didn't stop there, being conformed to his death. Sacrificially. Completely. Paul could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul could say that this seed must die that it might inherit the kingdom, for incorruption cannot put on the kingdom till it's made incorruptible. Sure, no confidence in the flesh, but confidence in Christ. As Paul would say in like manner in Romans chapter 4, speaking Particularly about the faith of Abraham, as we have been in Hebrews chapter 6, saying in verse 16, Therefore it is a faith, Romans 4, therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Both sure, where is the anchor attaching upon what is it hooked that brings stability? It's of grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, notice, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith, of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Surely the anchor must hold in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, for then it holds. If the anchor is in yourself, by works that ye have done you think you are saved, or you think you are maintained in that salvation, you are adrift. An anchor for the soul is firmly attached to the promises of God that he gave to Abraham, and Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him for white righteousness. Note, skipping to Romans 5. Verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. So in the reasonable nature of the world, there are some good men that are so good that someone might stand in their place and say, I'll take his place. But that's not the case with us. With us, when we were still without strength, meaning totally unsaved and rebels of before God, We were ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how much had we earned? What was to our credit that we could say, God should let me into heaven? I should be saved from His wrath to come, that would avoid hell and eternal punishment? Absolutely nothing. While we, that's all who've ever believed, were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath, listen, through Him. We're not saved from wrath by being that one good man that somebody should ought to die for. We are saved from the wrath of God. This isn't the wrath of Satan. This is the wrath of God. The wrath of Satan is something. But it is not a worry for a believer. Or even for a non-believer, by the way. The wrath of God that goes on eternally when it is unquenched, is the worry. And how is it quenched? How will the wrath of God be appeased? What will make him accept you? Are you saved? How? Where is your anchor attached? Here is where it should be. Verse 9, Romans chapter 5, much more than having been justified, listen, by his blood. Christ died for us. By his blood, we have been justified. We shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved, listen, we shall be saved by his, what? Life. There's key terms in the Bible. And here's two of them. Death and life. If you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And as Paul says in Romans 5, And through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, that man Adam. After that point, there's only one word that matters life. And for all of us today, we care about what that word means. Can I have an amen? I want to live. Doctor says to you, you here's an operation we can do, and there's a 50 50 chance that you might pull through. Uh, what do you want to do? Here's the answer most would give I want to live. I'll take the 50%. I want to live. I want to live. He died. Jesus died. He shed his blood. He appeased the wrath of God while you were yet a sinner. And as high priest, he will offer this to God. Where's your anchor? Are you guarded by this? Protected by this? In in what is your security of your salvation? Is it a trite saying? Is it just a theological mantra? Security of salvation? I believe in the security of salvation. What if somebody asks a follow-up? Like, what do you mean by that? Well, the pastor says we're securing our salvation, so there. That isn't good enough for you or anyone else. And in your own mind and at your own nighttime watches, it won't float. You will drift. Is your anchor sure? Is it secure in the life of Jesus. He rose from the dead. You didn't rise from the dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. He died. He bled. He reconciled. He justified. You believe. When you throw an anchor over the side, how much can you see? Not much. You've just heard from people before that if you throw the anchor over the side, there's a good chance it'll catch something. And so in faith, you take your anchor, And you throw it over the side. Trusting that it's going to catch. Why? Because you're on earth. And you know that underneath the water, there's land. There's something to get a purchase on. These are the rocks below the surface of the water you float on that you must trust in the second fluke of our anchor a steadfast anchor worthy of hope it's both sure and it's steadfast first it is sure and then also it's steadfast building on the first term the second comes that which is stable that holds fast that is firmly attached Uh, another way of looking at it is something that is trusty or trustworthy even better so Unshaken or constant, the point of your anchor sets, surely, steadfastly, to be grounded or anchored or secured. You know, it seems, you know, and as I say, I'm born in Montana, I'm a man of the land, I really have no desire to go out on the ocean. But as I understand it, and you know, perhaps this is simplistic, but ships tend to drift. Boats can be pulled out from the shore because they're on water. And water seems to me to be a rather unstable place to be. Unlike the pavement of your highways and byways, that to me, they pretty much stay in one place. If I park my car, it's usually right where I left it when I get back, barring an earthquake or someone stealing it. My understanding is boats are not like this. You don't just come up, get kind of near shore, and leave it. But it'll be fine. Let's go see what's happening on land. You come back? Uh-oh. I think we need to learn a few lessons here. Boats drift. They can be pulled out. They can be carried away. Out to sea, out or down the river. And that is so much like the Christian life. I won't ask for an amen, but you have better have said one in your own head. And I know that this is something that can happen to all of us because the writer of Hebrews has already used this metaphor, has already used this picture of boats at sea and the insecurity of people in life when in chapter 2, we read these words in verse 2. In verse 1, excuse me. Chapter 2 of Hebrews, look at verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more, more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Lest we fail to put down our anchor into the things that we've heard, we will drift away. Away from security, away from shore, away from our attachment to God, away from confidence. As I understand it, there's nothing worse than being adrift at sea without any way to power your movement. In Montana, we do have a similar saying. It's, you're up a creek without a paddle. And that is what we're looking at here. How will you steady your position? Is your anchor steadfastly attached? Where is your hope? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls on all the brethren to live this kind of a life. And I contrast that with what we see so often and the broad spectrum of what is called Christianity today, and I might even say what is called Evangelical Christianity today, those who believe that the Bible is the sole source of faith and practice and is indeed the inspired Word of God. You need at least those two to start being an Evangelical. And Paul would say to all who name the name of Christ, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren be steadfast just like this anchor an anchor must be steadfast and then he uses a qualifying word immovable always abounding in the work of the lord listen knowing your labor is not in vain in the lord why should i do anything for god why should i follow after him what is this all about i'm sick of this you're drifting If you think what you do for the Lord is worth nothing, then your anchor is not securely held. You're not being steadfast and immovable on the truth, on the things which you have heard. Is your anchor secure? It is interesting in 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, Paul says to Timothy these words. He says, nevertheless, now pay special attention here. Nevertheless, The solid foundation of God stands. You Get the feeling of security there? The solid foundation of God stands. What God has built upon is a solid foundation. It stands yet, listen, having this seal. So it's like the inspector came and said, this is a good job. Boy, that's good flat work, that that concrete. Whoo, reinforced. This baby will stand. This is going to be here a while. This is a generational foundation. Here's a seal of approval. Having this seal, <laughs> listen to this. The Lord knows those who are his. What? The Lord knows those who are his. What? I said, the Lord knows those who are His. It's more important that He knows that than that you do. He is the secure determiner of your fate. If you are His, you're His, baby. There's no getting out of it. God and the foundation is that you are his. And remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, of all whom the Father has given me, I shall lose none of them. And all the Father has given me will come to me, and I will in no by no means cast them out. God knows those who are his. Jesus knows who they are whom God has given him. And that's a firm foundation for the Christian. That you are part of a relationship between God the Father and God the Son that is a love relationship that has everything to do with marriage. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to join in holy matrimony this man and This woman. Who gives this woman to this man? And the father will stand up and in a shaky voice say, I do. I do. He gives from his hand to the bridegroom, the woman. All whom the father has given me will come to me and I'll by no wines divorce them. I will not cast them out. It's a security. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and since you're His, then you can live like this. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you get those things in reverse order, your anchor is slipping. You're adrift. If you think you need to depart from iniquity before you believe in the Lord, that's wrong. But once God has saved you and given you and knows you, then you can depart from iniquity. There's a big difference there, and it's the difference of being adrift or being secure. I have to move on. I just looked at the clock on accident. Now I want to look at the reliance on the access of our high priest. The access of our high priest, verse 19 of chapter 6. This hope we have is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast. Now listen to this phrase, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Every Hebrew understands what the writer is saying. He has just taken them into the tabernacle of meeting. He's just taken them into the temple that followed the tabernacle of meeting. He takes them into the holy place. And the holy place was separated from the most holy place by a heavy veil. Some historians tell us it was so heavy, his weaving was four inches thick. No light that was inside ever penetrated that veil and was seen on the outside. So thick was this veil. And it all has to do with a high priestly ministry wherein this holiest of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant of God sat in that temple, And the ark of the covenant of God and covered by two cherubim and their wings meeting in the middle. And the side of this was a place where the word of God in its original form was to be kept and every king was to make a copy of that word of God. Inside was Aaron's rod that had budded. Inside was the manna that they collected in the wilderness when God provided and gave them deliverance. But that Aaron's rod that budded confirmed Aaron as the chosen priest of God. And it was only once a year that those in the line of Aaron, those in the high priestly genealogy family of Aaron, the first high priest, were allowed to go in Once a year, one time. And God had said he would appear between the cherubim. And so I take you to the book of Leviticus to read what every Hebrew would know by practice, by way of life, about the ministry of a high priest. Leviticus 16, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. I kept that in just to remind you how dangerous it is to approach God inappropriately without the right, without being of the order of the great high priests, of the high priests, and to do it properly according to the prescription of God. Christians have gotten flippant about approaching God. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come not to come at just any time into the holy place. Not just whenever you feel like it, But according to this prescription, don't come into the holy place inside the veil. Now we know he's in the most holy place. Even more so he describes where he is and what is in that place before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. So you got one day you can come in if you dare to come in any other day Of the year but that one day you're dead approaching God is a dangerous thing for fallen man and God says why for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat and unless it's on the day prescribed you will die of my glory your sin will collapse you on itself He said, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. So he's got to come in with blood. Blood sacrifice, offering as prescribed, a bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering. I wanted to have more time to read all of this, but I must need skip down to verse 15. Leviticus 16, verse 15 now. Another offering is taking place, and we'll notice it applies to the people. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat so poignant so descriptive so powerful that that place that where is depicted the cherubim is though it looks not like a throne it is called the mercy seat of God so when This priest is approaching. He is not coming for grace. He is coming for mercy. When you ask for mercy, it is innate to that term that you are admitting guilt. We sinned. See, that's the first step in coming to God from man's side. Yes, the Lord knows who are His. And the first thing those who are His do upon being regenerate, even before they know they've been born again, is to see their sin and admit it. See, unbelievers will see sin and blame somebody else. Or say things like, well, let's, the modern ways, I'm ready to move on beyond that, you know. And when a murderer says that, we say, "Well, the person you killed isn't ready to move on; they're dead." Or if you stole some from somebody else, you might be able to move on from that, but uh, give it back. You're still a thief. Believers believe they're sinners. So every year, the entirety of Israel was taught by God of their status, and their status is sinner, who needs from God one very important thing, mercy. And mercy is asking that what you deserve, which is the punishment of God, that is, due you, that God would not do that to you. And the picture here is that someone is standing or something is standing in your place and dying on your behalf because the wages of sin is what? Death. So every year Israel had demonstrably place before their eye the need for something to die and stand in their place. Why? Verse 16 of Leviticus 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. What? For the building? For the holy? Wait. He didn't say for the people here. He said for the holy place. Listen. Listen because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions. Listen to this. Holy God, in the holy temple, beyond the holy place of God, into the most holy place, place of God, by virtue of it being in the presence of sinful Israel, was rendered unclean. Everything that sinful man touches is tainted by his sin and his transgression. We say, why is this world in such a mess? Why can't we just get along? Why are people talking about nuking each other again? Why can't the Republicans and the Democrats figure something out? Why can't children on the schoolyard stop fighting? Why can't you Sin entered the world. The mercy seat. One would think that was enough to keep it clean. But sprinkle this blood before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel. Because of their transgressions. For all their sins so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Can you just see? Can you just smell? Can you just taste the decay and the putrid nature of mankind in sin here that it is so terrible? Have you ever been to the dump? You know, here we have a transfer station. We bring the garbage and the trash, and you go into this building, and you unload it there, and it does not smell good. And that's not even the dump. That's not even a place where all this stuff goes and it's concentrated. But let me tell you something. If you stand there, even by that trash... For the short period of time, it might take you to unload your trailer or to unload your truck as you get into that thing and you start driving away and you even get home. And I don't know, guys, because it's got this guy job. Is is this just me? This is a guy job. I mean, I've seen a few gals at, at the dump, but they're mainly helping their wives. Mostly it's a guy job. Can I have an amen? And it's good. You guys should do this. Take care of the trash. Take the trash out. This is for free. This is marriage counseling. But if you come back into the house and you have a wife like mine that can, that can smell parts per million, she's going to say something like, what's that? And you're like, what? I smell something. Oh, I went to the dump. That's it. That's it. You've been hanging around the trash. Let me tell you, believer, if you hang around trashy people, that will stick to you. You have corrupt friends. Their corruption will stick to you, young people. Who you walk with will attach to you like a scent. And you may not be able to smell it. Might yeah, be like me coming back from the dump. <laughs> I got that Joe dump. I'm expecting my wife to rejoice. Yeah, I got the dump taken care of. She's, bro, what is that? It's like skunk stuff. You get skunked every so often. Our dog gets skunked, and he becomes in the realm of the unclean. He can't get in the house anymore. He's outside. Sorry, you're not coming in. You stinketh. The picture is so dire. It is so desperate. It's so awful. We laugh about it. But when you think about it, everything that sinful man is touching needs cleansing. Even this earth, at the end of God's use of it, will need to be cleansed with fire. So every year the temple had to be cleaned inside the most holy, out with blood. because of the sins of Israel. Verse 17, There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out. Nobody goes in. All alone he enters the terror of the presence of God with the blood of animals to make atonement for man. This is the role of the high priest. It is a role that necessitates bravery. Even Hebrews will teach us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you think, oh no, I'd love to see the glory of God, you are mistaken. Desperately so. For until you are glorified, you will not be able to handle it. So once a year we go in there, no one else should be around there or they will die until he comes out that he may make atonement for himself. Even the high priest had to make atonement for himself, for his household and for the assembly of Israel. I'm unclean. My... Families unclean. My people are unclean. Like Isaiah said, I am an unclean man with unclean lips, Lord. And when he saw God in his glory, he said he was undone, and he can't speak for God because he's unclean. Our anchor is held not because we go in. He enters The presence behind the veil. Behind the veil. i got to stop. I'm not done. I'm not done with this. Jesus, the great high priest, takes over the priestly ministry. Let me give you a, a foreshadowing, in common parlance, a commercial for next week's sermon. Go to Matthew. This is where we will set our anchor, both sure and steadfast. Matthew 27, verse 50. The book of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 50, Christ is on the cross, the cross of atonement to appease the wrath of God with blood. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. The only word that would suffice, I am sure, here is agony. Agony. And yielded up his spirit. He died. Then behold, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Next week, I'll give the why of that. Now, I'll pray. Join me. Father God, how quickly the time goes in my mind when we speak of the greatness of your person and of the great high priest, your Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. Pray in the next few weeks, Lord, that our anchor would become more securely attached to Christ as high priest than ever before in our lives. That the drifting nature of our lives would be stabilized by these truths. may we be able to say with assurance this hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.